This week on Excelsior Journeys, my guest is novelist, playwright, screenwriter, and director, Rex Pickett. Rex is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the release of his novel, Sideways, a novel that went on to inspire three sequels, an Academy Award-winning film adaptation, and an upcoming musical. Plus, Rex is also celebrating the hardcover launch of Sideways for the first time ever. But we're also going to let you know how you can meet him later this month. So, JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. And you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for and you? And that's why I moment? taught myself how to draw. It was actually the Little Mermaid. Drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than so die. He jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater with him saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm sex. rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, yeah. throw some spaghetti yeah. against the wall. See this if it is sticks. George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. We're at over 180 episodes, so close to 200, and I am so grateful to all of you for coming along with me. There's so much going on throughout 2023, including the upcoming Excelsior, the audio drama. I hope you have the Clubhouse app downloaded because part one of the show goes live at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 Pacific on Sunday, March 12th, and is replayed the next week at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 Pacific on Sunday, March 19th, before part two goes live right after. And don't forget, this spring 2023, the Once Upon a Podcast Network will be launched with Excelsior Journeys being one of the various creative-centric podcasts focused on inspiring, motivating, celebrating, educating, and rejuvenating creatives of all kinds. Now, before I welcome this week's guest, I want to note that the audio drama coming out this weekend is based on a character who started out in short stories, filling my steno notebooks in 1992, and then moved on to becoming a novel in 2010. At the same time, my five-part serial from Parts Unknown started out as a video game outline, then a script treatment, then over 10 drafts of a script before becoming a novel in 2002, and then rewritten as a serial in 2019. So it's safe to say that anyone who takes several different approaches to storytelling is going to be on my radar. And when I learned about the career of screenwriter, director, novelist, and playwright Rex Pickett, I knew he had to be on this show. Rex not only gave us the characters of Miles and Jack in the novel Sideways, which will be adapted into the Academy Award-winning film, but before that, he wrote and directed two independent features before writing an Academy Award-winning short in 1999. He's also moved into playwriting, taking Miles and Jack along with him, and he's also penned two sequels of Sideways. And now, with the re-release of Sideways, now in hardcover... Rex is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the book's release at two different events. The first one is at Nicholson Ranch on Sunday, March 12th. The second one is at Ramsgate Winery on Saturday, March 18th. Both are in Sonoma, California. So for more info, please check out his new website at rexpicketbooks.com. That link is going to be in the show notes. We got quite a bit to discuss here, so it is my honor to introduce screenwriter, director, novelist, and playwright, Rex Pickett. Rex, how are you, sir? George, thanks for having me on. That is the most comprehensive introduction I think I've ever had on a podcast, so kudos to you. 
Thank you. And and kudos to you for being on, on this show. It's very much appreciated. And I really, really appreciate your time. And I am really excited about this, uh, this 20th anniversary re-release. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, actually, uh, I got offered a chance, just going back a little bit, to go to the country of New Zealand to write yet another sequel. So it would actually be the third sequel. And, uh, and of course, they were closed down because of COVID, and I had to wait. And and then I got the novel I'd come out with before is not a sequel. It's called The Archivist. It's a very long novel. And it was actually originally an eight-episode limited series. I wrote out 512 screenplay pages. Honestly, wow. George, I'm not sure anyone has ever done it in Hollywood, but I was so swept up in the story that I just wrote it all out. And when I gave mm-hmm. it to my agent, he right then, Blackstone Publishing called me, a gentleman mm-hmm. named Rick Blyweiss, and said, we've been an audiobook, you know, producer for 30 mm-hmm. years. We're now getting into print. What have you got? And I said, wow. well, I wrote an eight episode limited series that is based on a novel I didn't write. So I would like to write that novel. Nice. And I, and I sat down <laughs> and he said, okay. And we literally, without an agent, lawyers, we just did a deal like that. And that's fabulous. So uh, what I did was, of course, now I'd written an eight episode limited series I sat down and I actually girded my loins mm-hmm. and wrote 225,000 words in 90 days. And then, wow. but of course, yeah, as you know, it goes through drafts and whatever, 640 yeah. pages. And so that book came out a year and a half ago. I'm really proud of it. And it's now been optioned and we'll see. I, I, they want me to cut the eight episode or down to two hours, you know, into a feature film. Oh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, and that, that's been, and I've done it. I've already done it, you know, as we'll find out in the course of this, you know, podcast is I also thank you for mentioning my screenwriting and other stuff and also my directing. because mm-hmm. I really did come from film a lot. But as I was getting ready to go to New Zealand, I told them about, hey, I'm going to New Zealand. I told Blackstone, they go, well, we want, we want in on that. And then they yeah. said, and, and, and what about Sideways? You know, I said, well, it only came out. They knew about this. It only came out in a paperback by mm-hmm. St. Martin's and, and they were, they badly treated me. They did not spend one nickel on promotion, even though they Ugh. had a, a film that not only had, you know, was nominated for five Oscars and it just won so many awards, every, everything, six Indie Spirit Awards, New York Film Critics, LA Film, just on and on. They did not spend one nickel for promotion, came out with it as a paperback. And in fact, if I told you what I've made off of that, off of that novel, given that the movie grossed over a half a billion dollars in all, whatever you would, you know, you, you, we both would get the violins out, George, you know? Yeah. So, you know, anyway, so I did a deal with Black Zone for Sideways New Zealand. I went there for six months. Mm -hmm. Miles and Jack are reuniting and they are on a book tour for hell, from hell (laughs) in, and this was someone else's idea in a camper van. Oh, nice. <laughs> the, the, publish, the publisher at the last minute has done a bait and switch on him. Yeah. And, uh, and now to save money, he's got him in a camper van. <laughs> so, <laughs> so guess what, George? I had to take that trip. But oh, it's man. Act- so it's in, I'm over there in June. Well, yeah. June, of course, is there December. Of course, yeah. So, the yeah. Day we t- and so I, I was over there doing pre prep, you know, whatever. And anyway, just backing up to answer your question, I have a, a, a problem with, you know, digressing. Oh, is, no so they, Blackstone said, well, what about Sideways? And what are I said? Well, it never came out as a hardcover. And they said, that's ridiculous. And so they said, let's do a deal for that. And then Sideways Chile 
So my middle novel, which is called Vertical, is kind of caught up in a rights issue. I don't really want to get into it, but I th- we are disentangling them. So okay. they're coming out with not just Sideways, the hardcover, but Sideways Chile, which was my third one. Mm-hmm. And of course, Sideways New Zealand, not to confuse your listeners, will come out. It's already written. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm into the third draft and it will come out at the end of 2023. And so, you know, just to echo your thing, I'm, you know, go to my rexpicketbooks.com and, you know, two T's and Picket and, and there you'll see all the events and things that you so nicely mentioned and also the books that can be pre-ordered. But so I'm, so the sideways hardcover is, it's literally the release date is March 7th and mm-hmm. I've got them right here. My God, they look gorgeous. I was able to co-design the cover with Blackstone oh, and, um, and, and I had a lot, a lot to do with it. It just looks great. And just, just think. Think about this, George. Mm-hmm. I wrote this novel in 1998-99. Yep. The movie comes out in late 04. Yeah. Never a hardcover, never a dime of promotion from a major mm-hmm. publisher. You know, and here I am now sitting with a hardcover in my hands of my novel, you know, and as you know the movie has it's still being remembered today. Hey, that's why you called me, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that that means the most to me, and it almost fogs my eyes with tears to see this hardcover. It is. I'm calling this. So I've got a, a year and nine months to the the 20th year anniversary of the movie, which is on October 22nd, 2024. You know, but I, I'm calling it the Redemption Tour, George. Oh, that's great. And yeah. and, and one and, and really, it really, it really does it really does <clears throat> it really does bring tears to my eyes to see this hardcover because it it's so. I, I just think it really deserved it, and the and the, for the fans and everything. And now to go into the wine world, which is where I always wanted to go. I mean, look, I'm open to the literary world. I want to believe the book is literary. Yeah. In fact, Jay McInerney, you know, Bright Lights, Big City, he anthologized anthologized the opening chapter in a book called Literary Wine Reads, which you check out from Grove Press. So that you know, it does. I want to believe it has literary merit, but in the wine world it has a hundred percent brand recognition. And those are people who still just, you know, they love it like it came out yesterday. And so to have a hardcover and be able to autograph and inscribe in, and be in person and tell the inside stories. I got all kinds of stories about the writing, the making, the the long journey to it being a movie and everything else. And so it, it, it is it is truly the redemption tour. Thanks and to that- Black Blackstone Publishing, to be honest with you. And not only that, but just, I mean, just the fact that, yes, the, you know, the movie, the movie was definitely, definitely earned, earned its right to be remembered as, as it does. But Miles and Jack had, you know, came from somewhere else. They came from you. You know, they right. came, they, right. that story start, you know, came from you. And yeah. the fact that that is, that is finally getting its due. That that's a wonderful thing. Like as as an author myself, like I I feel like that's that's a that's a beautiful thing to actually yeah, have that. George, th- yeah. thank thank you thank you for saying that honestly because you know as a novelist in Hollywood and I you know I come more from Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, you know and of course when the film hit there were a lot of what I call you know you know spotlight hoggers and credit grabbers mm-hmm. and a lo- and a lot of pathological liars and we won't name names. Right. And suddenly it's like you don't exist. And next thing you know, Sideways was the Immaculate Conception. Yeah. All they, of a sudden just it just all, popped yeah, out. They just, yeah. they just went up there and took up some cameras and 35 millimeter film and made a movie. But mm-hmm. even more to the point is Miles, played by Paul Giamatti, is mm-hmm. written in first person from the point of view of a guy, you know, I mean, 
from mm-hmm. Rex Pickett, you know, yeah. at a time in his life where I just gave a long interview to the San Francisco Chronicle and they were so fascinated with it. Didn't, it wasn't like I sat down and said, oh, two guys go wine tasting, whatever. No, this had been building up in me for almost a decade. That yeah. character is a he's a lived in character. I bared my soul. And in fact, my ex-wife, who directed the short film that you mentioned that won the Academy Award that I wrote, mm-hmm. when she read Sideways, she told me to burn it. Really? Yeah. She and she was serious. Wow. And she's now she's now the chair of NYU Tisch School of the Art graduate film. And she told me to burn <laughs> sideways. And a woman, a really intelligent woman who I just started, you know, having a few dates with, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I, I thought there was some promise because my I was so lonely and broke and my life was so bleak. Mm-hmm. She wanted to read the novel because my agent had flipped for it and a couple of other people had flipped for it. And we were getting ready to go to both publishing and film simultaneously because yeah. it had it had film written all over it and this woman came over and said i can't see you anymore i go why she goes well i read your novel i just but this is before it's published right she said how could you be so personal and yeah said it re- rebukingly and what? i said well i said and i thought that was the definition of art being personal you know mm-hmm. it was an yeah. art, art of personal that's what i grew up believing and then she walked off my porch and that was it five years <sighs> later i saw her and my ex-wife at the closing night of the New York Film Festival at Alice Tully Hall with 2,000 people. They were scalping tickets. And she came up and said, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was so I was so hurt. But so that character is, he's soul-bearing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he has a novel that he can't get published, as you know, from the movie. Well, that was yeah. me. I had written a mystery novel. It got mm-hmm. me a literary agent. I was I was absolutely nowhere in life. And and that literary agent, Jess Taylor is his name, mm-hmm. went out with it. But he came out to L.A. from New York to be at Endeavor. It's now William Morris Endeavor. And that is a key, key thing that doesn't get spoken about by all the spotlight hoggers and credit grabbers, who we mm-hmm. won't name, you know, most notably the producer who just lied through his teeth. And 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 he he was the one who got it to Alexander Payne's agent. And mm-hmm. um, and then but before Alexander Payne's had a development. Brian Beery, who also doesn't get credit, could read it. It was nine months. Everyone had turned it down, and my agent had a nervous breakdown and left the business. And in fact, wow. the last time I saw him was a breakfast in Beverly Hills. Then he wanted me to walk him to a psychiatrist's office. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. And that's what, so there was all this excitement about it. Mm-hmm. My mystery novel, La Parisma, wasn't selling, thus miles, whatever. So when I wrote, sat down to write sideways, I literally threw in everything in the kitchen sink. I had nothing to lose. I was nowhere. Mm-hmm. I was in an age in my life where I obviously wasn't going to be, you know, qualified to be a waiter, as somebody once said to me, because you don't have a resume about being a waiter, you know. Right. <laughs> and I, I directed two feature films, you know, but then the second one sold the Island Pictures and they butchered it and mm-hmm. whatever. And I'd had some screenwriting jobs and a member of the Writers Guild, Kevin Bacon, hired me at, at then Columbia TriStar, now Sony, for my first big job. So I had had some success. In fact, you might be interested in this. Because I wrote a, a twenty thousand word article, I was the last writer on Alien Three. David Finch. I heard about that. I yeah. heard about that. So yeah, you, should, you should you should read that twenty thousand word article because I, I sent it to this guy, a big sci fi magazine in France. He asked yeah. me, and I I don't I think he thought I was he was going to get the inside story about you know the face hugger and creature stuff. Oh no, mm-hmm. he got another inside story. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was—I told him what what 
what really happened. And it's a fascinating story. And yeah. and he wrote me back and he said, holy shit. You know, all that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, uh, you know, so I, I've had some, some brushes with success, you know, but then, you know, my life went into the Dixie dumpster in the nineties. My mother had a massive stroke. My younger brother took over her care. He stole our money, mm-hmm. you oh, know, and man. I had to take over her care and yeah, blah, blah, blah. I mean, don't cry for me. And not that you are. And, and, you know, and, and so when I wrote Sideways, I really was at the end of my rope. And so when you see Miles, he is a school teacher in the movie. That's one of the few changes. It's a very faithful adaptation of my novel. Um, mm-hmm. But in the novel, he's not. He's a guy like me living on the edge. And I, I literally, I had nothing to lose when I wrote that novel. And then, like I said, it went out to publishing and film and mm-hmm. Hollywood and everybody turned it down. In fact, the rejection letters on my mystery novel, La Prisma, are actually quite kind. The rejection letters on Sideways are vitriolic. Really? Oh, wow. I mean, one, they, they send them to your agent. So my new agent, new literary agents, and I have two agents. I'm, I'm kind of excited. There's some life in my career. I've got a, a, a book to film agent at Endeavor and mm-hmm. a, a publishing agent at Curtis Brown LTD. So it'd been turned over to him. His name was Mitchell. Mitchell Waters, and he he said a couple of things that were kind of funny to me. He said, Rex, I think we're going to pull the manuscript because it's stinking up New York. Wow. Yeah. Oh, they say this. And what? And, and the rejection letters back then, today they probably come via email, but back then they actually came yeah. in an actual letter, and they sent them to your agent, and your agent would forward them to you. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. And, it's like, and, here and you go. My, <laughs> and one of my members was, Dear Mitchell, why did you send me this total fucking piece of shit. Literally, those were his words. Signed, blah, blah, senior editor, Little Brown, or whatever. I'm just oh, making man. that. In fact, yeah. by the way, you know, it's part of the redemption here. So my papers were taken by my alma mater, the University of California, San Diego. So the Rex Pickett papers are there. And those were, it, for all you aspiring writers out there who, mm-hmm. you know, are thin-skinned like me, I'm not pachydermic right. about rejection because we all have trouble with rejection. Just go to the Rex Pickett papers and read the rejection letters that are in my archive. <laughs> oh, they're in there? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, you know, may, you know, maybe have a few stiff ones before you go in there. But <laughs> right. <laughs> now, sp- speaking as speaking as a fellow author, like the definitely, you know, I I'm no stranger at all to getting rejected of about course. things. I'm no stranger at all to getting you know, like bad reviews on, you know, on things that I've written. And, you know, we. It's it's a funny thing. It's like Paul Schrader said it best when he when he said that the only reason that people get into the arts is because they have no choice. And it's just like there is that force that just kind of guides them there. And they are basically they're in there because that is what they're on this world to do. And one of the things that I love to hear about is basically something that is a companion to that. It's what I like to call the lightning bolt moment. And that's that moment in time when you experience something or read something, meet someone, see something. And it just makes you think that's the kind of path I want to go on. That's the kind of person that I want to be. Now, when it came to writing, what was it about writing that grabbed your attention and made you want to start down this path that you're on now? By the way, I I agree with Paul Schrader. You know, I I think that there's so many people who want to be a writer or they want to be a filmmaker and maybe some mm-hmm. can make it in some capacity. But I do, I do think it's something we know with music, it's something you're really born with, but mm-hmm. I just, I think that it, it is almost imposed on you in a numinous way. If I can be, you know, somewhat kind of, 
you know, overly cerebral here. I just think I agree with him that there, you just don't have a choice and that's it. And you, you back yourself into this corner. I'm going to either make it or I'm going to leap off the cliff. And I've mm-hmm. said to people many times, and don't let me forget your question. I've said, if you have a backup plan, you've already sown the seed of failure. Mm. So for me, you know, I grew up in Southern California in a suburban neighborhood, cookie cutter homes, blah, blah, blah. And I was into surfing and sports and whatever. And I, I don't know, somewhere around 16 or 17, I was always considered really smart. I guess I tested really high and all that other stuff. And I looked around at my contemporaries and mm-hmm. they looked like a bunch of stoner losers riding motorcycles, not that anything against them. And they're right. all going nowhere in life. And I don't want to be that. And, and I just started something jolted inside me around age 17. Suddenly mm-hmm. I'm reading right out of high school. I went to Europe with a friend of mine, just doing things different from every one of the stoner loser, you know, Budweiser guzzling, you know, guys in my neighborhood. And, and because that is my origins, it's middle-class. I didn't Southern California, San Diego. I didn't grow up in New York with, mm-hmm. you know, family who took you out to the theater when you were 12 years old. I didn't have that cultural background. And then suddenly I, um, you know, at some point, I felt like, well, I, I could give you kind of a, a flip funny answer. And I, cause I actually said this to somebody once, you know, what do you think was it made you right? Or I said, well, probably cause I wasn't breastfed, but you know, <laughs> my, my mother had three, my mother had three boys and, and didn't want to have kids at all. And she was, du- she's a dutiful mother, but she didn't want to have children at all. And, mm-hmm. and I think that I, I was lacking maybe in that sense of being able to express feelings. And, and I always try to find a feeling somewhere. I couldn't, I tried to play guitar like everybody, and, you know, I still can't play a G chord and, uh, you know, I can't draw whatever. And so, you know, I started reading, I thought, you know, I, maybe I, I wrote poetry, like a lot of writers start writing poetry, at least back in my day. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, and I thought, no, here, here's a form. I needed a form of expression if I wasn't going to go mad and for, mm-hmm. and I desperately needed it. And to me, writing was it. So even though I also have made films, the important part on the filmmaking side is I wasn't as interested in directing. And I certainly didn't like editing that much, but I did. I was interested in writing and then making movies because it's just another form of storytelling. But it's a form of personal expression. I needed that. I needed that medium. I needed that platform. I needed I, I needed something to express myself because if I didn't, I honestly thought I was going to go completely mad. And so mm-hmm. I think there's somewhere around 17, I just looked around at this sunsplash neighborhood of surfer stoner losers. And I said, I don't want to be them. And, and then what really happened is I got in the university of California, in San Diego, and that's a long story, but I'll spare you where, you know, where my papers are at. I'm very, you know, honored for that. And, and suddenly now up on the Hill, close to where I live, but up in La Jolla, it was like a, a citadel. Now it's a huge university of 40,000 students. Back then it was only five wow. or 6,000 and only two colleges. Now it's six going on seven. And now I'm exposed to these intellectuals, to these incredible, like, I don't know, Manny Farber, who was a film critic and a painter. And he's showing Boone films by Boone Well and Fassbinder and Vendors. I'm just like, oh my God. And just it, every seemed like every day and and of course literature great mm-hmm. literature and and so he was that, just like a sponge at that point just got to take uh, it all yeah. in yeah. yeah and then i actually took a, a couple gap quarters and this is really strange 
and I'm, I'm combing bookstores two, three times a day. And I was so lonely at the time. And, and I didn't surf anymore. I cut myself off from all my friends. I really was on a, a, a journey to find myself, find my voice, I guess is what mm. I want to say. And I, one day I, I got a settlement on a small auto accident or something. And I went in and bought the entire collected works of Carl Jung, all 20 wow. volumes at once, at <laughs> once. And I sat wow. down and I read six hours a day for six months. I read the entire collected works of Carl Jung. Wow. And that, that totally transformed me. In fact, even today, when we talk about the hero's journey and everything, that's yeah. all Carl Jung. Yes, Joseph Campbell, he, he took everything from Carl Jung with, with Jung's blessing, but it was mm -hmm. all Jung, the whole archetypes. And I mean, Star Wars, it really owes everything to Carl Jung. I mean, yeah. we, we, know, we know it owes it to Joseph Campbell. Because mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell lived at you know Skywalker Ranch, you know. Yeah, he, yeah. He was he was George, he was uh, George Lucas's professor over at uh, right. it was USC, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. And but anyways, so you know that really so it's just one galvanizing thing. I'm also I'm also a very intense person, and when I get into something, whatever it is. I embrace it with an intensity and also have a certain kind of, I know I, I kind of go, I want to go not where the masses are going. I want to mm -hmm. go into a separate place. And that's a, you know, had I decided to maybe write TV, you know, maybe I'd be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know, but I didn't want to go in that direction. And it took yeah. a while to find, it took a while, George, to find my voice, but I would say 17 looking around at suburbia. And, and then, and then I needed that kind of, epiphanic or galvanic thing, you know, a, a setting or, or a, a whatever you might want to call it, an institution. And that was the University of California, San Diego. I owe some, I don't even remember my high school. I could give a shit about high school, but, but <laughs> the university that they, they did everything for me, the professors there, whatever. And then of course it was, you know, meeting my ex-wife. Yes. She told me to burn sideways, but she also produced my two feature films. She came from means and we moved to LA to make films. And so that was huge too. But awesome. all along at age 17, when they talked to me that I'm going to write or I'm going to jump off a cliff. That's yep. that's all I cared about. And at 17, 18, to answer your question, I know that was a long journey. That was that's a long, right. it was a long. That's what the show is all about. So yeah. <laughs> it was a long union journey to that answer. But honestly, that was it. At 17, 18, I was looking for something. I was just so angst ridden as, you know, so, you know, full of Sturm und Drang and, you know, as so many young artists are. Yeah. And it took a while to break through and find my voice. And to be honest with you, at that time, there was such a plethora of avant-gardism. You know, you, we were reading Beckett and William Burroughs and, you know, and so many others, the French Nouveau Roman and whatever. But, and I tried to write like that. It just didn't feel right. And really, the hardest thing, and I've said this to people, is writing a story with characters who you are emotionally invested in. That's actually the hardest thing to do. And I yeah. think one, I, I broke through on my second feature with that. Even though the film wasn't great, the script got me work and it got me my – and I said, I can do this. I can write really three-dimensional, fully realized characters who you care about. And also in that film, I discovered – my predilection for comedy. Yeah. And so I could make people laugh and there, mm -hmm. there's laughter in there, even though it's a, it's a mystery, you know? So mm -hmm. I guess that's the long winded answer to your question is I really, something really changed in me around age 17. I just didn't want to be, 
like my contemporaries. And then I needed these these places, these institutions that would, you know, afford me the exposure. To, you, know, you need you need people to look up to. You know, you need to read. In my case, I needed to read Dostoevsky. I needed yeah. to see the films going well. You know what I mean? I for other people, it's different. Whoever is their inspiration, their mentor, whoever it is for you, you know, whatever. But those were kind of my early, you know, really the people who really inspired me. Excellent. Excellent. So, so while working with your, with your ex-wife on those, on those feature films, what was that sort of feeling like knowing that you finally were able to get something out, get something out into the world that really allowed you to express yourself and, and get it into into you know out into the masses what was that feeling like knowing that you're able to to accomplish that terrifying yeah yeah i mean it's my per- you have to realize that today in the digital day you can make a feature film in six months i spent mm-hmm. nine years making two films they were first one was shot in 16 the second was shot in super 16 to be blown up to 35 millimeter and the second mm-hmm. one took five years out of my life wow. you're exhausted you know you there are places where you don't think it works. There's a lot of self-doubt. Yes, the second one was sold to Island Pictures for 650000 but they came in and they butchered it. And, and it just, mm-hmm. you know, it's it can be, I, I know what you want me to say, that it's thrilling, it's exciting and whatever. And there are moments when it can be that. But because the two films did not succeed, you know, the first one was actually, was was played in film festivals, but it was so low budget. You know, but the second one was bigger budget. It's 35 millimeter. In fact, I had a great director of photography. The guy who shot Mohan Drive, David Lynch's film, was the mm-hmm. DP on it. You no know, kidding. and there were a lot. Yeah, Peter Deming, and he actually won an Indie Spirit Award for Mohan Drive. Fantastic mm-hmm. guy. So we had some really good people on that film. And the script was great, but it was it was a 4,000 mile road journey shot on over 90 locations. I mean, take a film like Steve Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm-hmm. You watch that film again. It was shot on five locations. There's a very very smart man. 90 yeah. locations, what happens is, is it really, you start to compromise and compromise, and you see it in the work. So the script may be great, but if you don't have, if you're undercapitalized, you know, you've got problems. And there's a yeah. guy who just was really smart. I mean, it was a great, I'm not trying to compare my my film to his because obviously his made a huge career out of him as a director. My director career basically ended with from Hollywood to Deadwood, although I do have some other screenplays that I, I would like in the digital day, George, mm-hmm. I would like to make one film in the digital day when, yes. I, I mean, think about we're shooting with ISO 100 max. Mm-hmm. Think yeah. how much light you have to add back in those days, you know, and today, you know, you could, you can set it at ISO 1600, 16 times, <laughs> you know, the, the light sensitivity with no image degradation. I mean, can you imagine? Why not? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, it, post-production is totally different. It was so laborious and manual labor intensive. And so anyway, I'd love to do that again. But it, it was it was hard and the films failed and it, it's soul crushing. You know, obviously, you, you live for, you know, you, you live for the, the hope that and it would take it would take to actually, not sideways, but to my mother dreams, the Satan's Disciples in New York, which is the short film that won the Oscar. And, you know, the script I wrote that my ex-wife directed, she, we parted company and she went to the American Film Institute to reinvent herself as a director. And I wrote all her first year pieces and she was only one of four 
to get to make a thesis film and that that she chose that and uh, so that was throwing because that's winning awards audiences yeah. are going crazy for it. and then of course it gets shortlisted for the oscar and then it gets nominated and that's huge and then it wins you yeah. know and i mean that's like i mean so you know i i maybe i had to go through the you know the 10 years of those two independent feature films i will say on a positive note to your listeners i I did get to make two independent feature films. I did not live a luxe life, but I also didn't have to work a job. I was getting a chance. So I considered that to be a privilege that I got a chance to make two independent feature films. And I also learned a great deal about writing in terms of, so my novels are, they, they, and Alexander Payne said this. So he's the director of Sideways mm-hmm. and, and the co-adapter of it. He said Rex's novel was the easiest novel that I've ever adapted because he thinks like a screenwriter. So in other words, mm. what that means is, is that I write, even in my novels, I write very dialogue. cinematically. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Dialogue, yeah. character and scene driven, scene mm. driven. And so now you've got the scene, I, you know, I'm not telling stuff through backstories and through, you know, meditative and, you know, I'm not waxing on for 10 pages about the color of the sky and how it means to my soul. None of which mm-hmm. translates to the screen. What right. translates to the screen is dialogue. And what dialogue does is it brings characters three-dimensionally to life mm-hmm. in, on, on the page in a novel. However, I will say this, the literary world pejorativizes you as an oversex screenwriter. And so they, they actually, and, I, and, and some of the rejections on Sideways, we're, we're saying that, oh, he's just a screenwriter. He's not, he's not a real writer. Oh. Yeah, that 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 really upsets me, you know, like, you know, get it, knowing that you got that sort of that sort oh. of feedback, because like, I mean, basically, it's it's you're at the at your core, you're a storyteller and right. you're get you're getting it out there. You're getting it, whatever sort of format it is, whatever sort of creative venue you wind up choosing, whether it's whether it's for the printed page, whether it's for the screen, whether it's for the small screen, whether it's for the stage. As you know, it's all about getting that story out. And that's something that my editor had told me about my book as well, saying that I have a very cinematic style to it, which, you know, like, you know, that's definitely a a good compliment. You know, so it's something I would. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no question that I mean, I didn't think like that necessarily, but no, it it's it's difficult, you know, a lot of dialogue in novels, even, and I'm talking about critically acclaimed novels, is often bad. Um, mm-hmm. Surprisingly, it doesn't feel real to me, like it comes from real people, even if the writing might be blazingly incandescent. They might have an incredible grasp, and I don't want to name any writers here, but oftentimes they're not, you know, a lot of great writers, and we know this because of the adaptations of them into movies, they just, there was no story there. But mm-hmm. there was a lot of great writing in there, but no yeah. great stories. I mean, a, a good example, you know, with one exception is Cormac McCarthy. He's considered one of the greatest writers in the history of American letters. I'm not a fan of his, but and I'm happy to say that. I mean, I'm willing to say that. But the no, the movies made from his novels are dreadful and and mm. because there's no story in them. But he does have this incredible grasp of language. I'll give him that, you yeah. know, but and, you know, there's there are other I don't know. I, I just. You know, I've wanted to, you know, bring characters to life. And you know where you, I really found it? Uh, I mean, I found it with Sideways, of course, mm-hmm. although I didn't do the adaptation. 
it, it's still it's being cherry picked from a novel that just has you know a, a lot of dialogue in. But it was when I did the theatrical version of Sideways, so that mm-hmm. leapfrogs over the movie, and yeah. and and I did it, and I the adaptation is of my novel, and now theater is just is all dialogue, mm-hmm. and and I could let it rip. In fact, by the way, Sideways the play has been on a national tour of Spain for the last year and a half. Wow. Yeah. It's playing to huge audiences, six, seven hundred. We 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 did it. I mean, how this happened is a long story, but I'll spare you. I mean, just totally by luck. I was doing yeah. a book signing across from a little theater. A guy came over, he's a huge sideways fan. He said, Have you ever thought about doing the play version? I said, No, not really. And, you know, it's just a little fifty seat theater. But I thought, you know, this might be kind of fun. I was kind of, you know, low at my life, I had just come out with a sideways sequel, but I was involved with this publisher, you know, called himself a publisher, but, you know, it was just a bad business relationship I had to get out of. And I'm just feeling pretty low. I mean, this is the sideways sequel, which I'm very proud of. It won the gold medal from the Independent Publishers Book Award for popular mm-hmm. fiction, but the person just reneged on every promise and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I said, you know, I think I'll do the play. I said, but under one condition, we have to pour high-end wine for free every night. And they thought I was nice. crazy. I made that happen. <laughs> so I did the play. And, and I mean, one of the reasons I did it, George, is they said, no one can change a word of yours without your permission. Of course, Ooh. no screen, no screenwriter has ever heard that. By the yeah. way. And you get to hire the director. I promise you. Ah. No, yeah, in theater, you get to hire the director. No screenwriter has ever heard that not no, even J- no not, even J- not even jk rollins although i guess el james the 50 shades woman i guess she had some say so but you know no one's ever heard that i said okay where do i sign but yeah. and i ultimately ended up turning down three directors i didn't like and i hired a, a young woman who'd only directed one play amelia malkin she knocked it out of the park and i had so much fun with those actors so it was supposed to run 15 performances we poured i made I made it possible to pour high-end wine for free. We were able to get a lot of it from Napa Sonoma, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, supposed to run 15 performances. It ran 100. Wow. And a 50-seat theater, three performances a week. It went straight from there to La Jolla Playhouse mm-hmm. with the the director of Jersey Boys, Des Mackina, three-time Tony Award winner. That's yeah. a four 400-seat theater, eight performances a week. Broke all attendance records there in 35 years for a non-musical <sighs> That's great. And, and so when you, so I'm, I'm trying to give you the positive side, that thrilling moment. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that with my two feature films, yeah. but I did have it with the play. I mean, to yeah. see the people laugh. So the play, I mean, this is from Des Mackin. He said to me, you know, before we had a falling out, but he mm-hmm. said to me, you know, Rex, I love the movie. I absolutely love it. But the play is richer and more emotionally complex. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's actually funnier. Now, I, I would say, in all fairness to Alexander Payne, you know, who's done so much for me because the movie is, is everything probably, but is is that they're different mediums. Theater is yeah. different than, than movie. Movie is different than, than book. And there's some things in the book that could might be melodramatic in the movie, blah, blah, blah. But it really it, – it, I was able to cut a little bit deeper. The women characters actually – their roles are expanded in the play. And, and then the dialogue, I just – I kept, I just riffed and let it go. And it, I hope you get a chance one day to see the play. Cause you know, oh, I would love to. Yeah. It, it just, especially at La Jolla Playhouse, which is a major regional theater has yeah. taken many Jersey boys and other things to Broadway, but, and Oh, and we have sideways, the musical. I wrote the libretto. All what? Eight, 
yeah, all 18 songs are recorded, was approached, and we did a concert of songs up here in Sonoma a year and a half ago from Sideways the Musical. We have, get this, mm -hmm. three-time Tony Award winner Kathleen Marshall is attached to direct. Yeah. Wow. And all 18 songs are recorded. And I wrote the oh, songs. I didn't write really? the music. Really? No, no. I have a, a close friend. I, I didn't write the music. But right, I wrote but the lyrics. The, I, the I, lyrics yeah. I, had, I had to write the lyrics to keep it in my voice. So yeah. Sideways, you know, before that, maybe I was finding my voice. But in Sideways, I I truly, I found my voice. And it's it's not... Once you find that voice, yes, with the archivist, I go away from it because it has two main women characters, one written first person and one because there's actually two stories. There's a backstory that's fake, and the other is written in close third person. But yeah. it's still it's still my sensibility, which is my voice. But right. with Sideways, with Miles, that's my voice. And in the play, oh, it comes crazy. through. And the yeah. musical, it really comes through. And the first song I wrote was mm -hmm. No Fucking Merlot. <laughs> now judging by judging by the the smile that i see on your face you're gonna you know i probably already know the answer to this question but i'm still gonna ask it because you've gone through both you've gone through two different routes with adapting sideways obviously it started off as the book but in when it got picked up by alexander payne he goes ahead and adapts it with jim taylor and they go ahead and you know go on, go in that direction, and like you said, they were faithful, very faithful to it, with the exception of a, of a few things. But then, when you had the opportunity to take it to the stage, you did the adaptation yourself. Now, speaking as someone who is who is getting ready for the the performance of an audio drama that's based on my own novel that I adapted, and. That's something that I challenge like any author to do is to adapt your own work to a different medium and stick to the restrictions that come with that medium and see what, you know, see how it, how it turns out. And it, you'll find that what I've always said is like, you're going to find, you know, like things that are, that, you know, that should be, you know, put up there, things that are expendable characters that can be put together or, you know, scenes that can be put together or different directions that you want to do in order to cater to that medium. For me, you know, like as an audio drama, the dialogue, just like with plays, it's everything. So what, what would you say is like something that you prefer to have your own work adapted by someone else or for you to take, take that route yourself and, and to go on that journey yourself? Well, I mean, there, there's kind of, I guess, a sarcastic or even a cynical answer to it. And then there's also just kind of the heartfelt answer to it. Mm -hmm. You know, because I've written and directed a couple of feature films, you know, I feel like I'm totally qualified to adapt my own novel and, and go out and make a movie. But mm -hmm. I don't have that power, you know, and, and what you have, you know, the because film, you know, Sideways was budgeted $16.5 That was a lot of money back then, given that actors weren't paid a lot. So, mm -hmm. you know, so you need somebody who has the power to take it to the screen. And Alexander Payne is coming off of election and about Schmidt. He's got that power. I don't. And, and the screen, if, if they're just reasonably faithful and they make a good movie out of it, it is going to just supercharge, turbocharge, you know, your novel. Although in my case, it didn't because, as you know, everyone thought it was the Immaculate Conception. So we're back to that. 
but right. you know, he, he, you know, so in that sense, you know, you're kind of holding on for dear life. You're hoping he doesn't make it two guys down in Cabo San Lucas doing jello shots, you right. know, because it could have been that and Hollywood has done that. And Alexander mm-hmm. wasn't like that. He went up there with me to the San Inez Valley, not once, but two, three times. He wanted to see locations. He could have shot at Napa Sonoma, which wouldn't have been right for the movie. He also showed me every draft of the screenplay, George. And in fact, wow. I don't know if you remember the movie that well, but there's a famous scene where Miles and Maya, played by mm-hmm. Virginia Madsen, have a long, soulful conversation about wine. Which is, yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's, it's one of the signature things. But what you don't know is in the first three drafts, Miles had one of these long speeches that's like that thick. You can see my in, my thumb and my index finger three inches apart. So yeah. those who know screenplays, that's a big speech. It could be mm-hmm. a five-minute speech. And Miles had a big speech about Pinot Noir and how it's haunting and all this other stuff. And and she says nothing for three drafts. Nothing. Really? And I said, Alexander, I, you know, he gave me a, I said, I, I put it in the notes. I said, you have got to write a speech for her, you know, something that is, you know, count, counterweights it. And then yeah. the fourth draft came her speech and it, it brought tears to my eyes and it was beautiful. Uh-huh. They shot it. And then he tried to cut it in post-production. He tried to cut it. Wow. Yeah, and he's and he and this was his reason. I want to be fair to Alexander because he's a yeah. great guy. Is he said I I think it's too sentimental and I think it's going to date my movie. And actually, the truth is, you know, he knows he's wrong because other than Miles's rant about Merlot and I know maybe him drinking from the spit bucket, the most memorable scene there, and I want to get to a point here, was what I call the wine duologue between Maya and Miles, and yeah. and without her speech. I, she's only in the movie for 12 minutes. Go mm-hmm. watch the movie. And when she starts to talk about the life of wine, which by the way is one of the songs in the musical, but when she starts to talk about the life of wine, turn the sound off and, mm-hmm. and, and just then turn it back on and watch the rest of the movie. Her character is a cipher without that speech. It's yeah. the only time that a woman in the movie has an inner life, you know, mm-hmm. and it's expressed there. So, but it, you know, give, you know, you know, credit to Alexander for, you know, soliciting my, you know, because, you know, once they buy your novel, they don't have to talk to you. They don't have mm-hmm. to spend any time with you. And he did. He wanted to. And and give him give him credit for doing it. And then, of course, you know, as they got to the mix, he got talked out of the tree. Alexander, you can't cut this. That's ridiculous. But I think mm-hmm. initially he did think it was kind of sentimental. And it is. But it's I like there's a great film critic. Peter Rayner is my favorite film critic. Mm-hmm. Used to write for New York Magazine. Now it's Christian Science Monitor. And he was writing a rave review of Sideways. And he said in there, he was talking about his first three films. And then he said, but in Sideways, Alexander Payne traded in his sarcasm for a soul. Wow. And I and I promise you that three-minute speech by Virginia Matson mm-hmm. is – there's a lot of soul and there's, there's other moments that have soul in there too. Cause it, you know, on one level, it's kind of a ha 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 comedy. Another yeah. level, you can go down deeper and it's about midlife crises, whatever, go down deeper. And it's about lying. And, you know, cause these guys are liars and you know, well, well Jack is, you know, whatever, yeah. but there, there, it has, there's a soulfulness there. There's something, there's re- something relatable about those characters. And I think that I, without that speech, I don't know if Peter Rayner writes that, writes that review. Of course, you know, writes that line in his review. Although mm-hmm. what I would have preferred him to say, now this I say this at the risk of a modesty, George. Mm-hmm. 
But in sideways, Alexander Payne traded in Alexander Payne for Rex Pickett. Mm, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And that moment. Not only was that was that a brilliant was that a brilliant you know piece of work and everything by you know Alexander and Taylor and then and Virginia Madsen had to pull it off as well and and she did a a beautiful job with that and then that's you know it's it's safe to say that got that got her the Oscar nomination that she deserved you know without 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 question yeah without question George I mean you uh, again I I any any of you listeners you sideways fans or whatever. Watch the movie again, and mm-hmm. when her speech starts, turn the sound off and leave it off for three minutes. She's only in the film for 12 minutes. Now mm-hmm. she's only in the film for nine minutes. I yeah. mean, she doesn't – not only – yes, she got an Oscar nomination. She didn't win. She got a, a Screen Actors Guild Award nomination. But she won everything, New York Film Critics, L.A. Film Critics. She won so many awards, and she won it for that one speech, and that speech – I mean, there was a part of me, I didn't even want to make the note in the margin to Alexander because I didn't want him to suddenly like, you know, shut me out, you yeah. know, and just, you know, you never know. What the, he's a great guy. He wouldn't do that. But, you know, it, you just don't know. You're scared. I just make the movie because that's where there is a big paycheck on that day when they make the movie for the novelist. But uh, but that speech is is the heart and soul of the movie. And in fact, so Maya is her name, and Tara is mm-hmm. the, actually the true name of, of the character played by Sandra Oh in the movie. In the play, their roles are both double. Now, part of that is because I actually not only wanted to expand them, but it, you get better actors if you have more for them to do. If you don't have yeah. a lot for them to do, whatever. So I really I needed to expand those roles. And I remember once I was at the play every night at Ruskin Group Theater, the little 50-seat theater where it ran 100 performances. And... And I, was, I mean, I didn't see the play every night, but I was there. I was there to meet the fans. And everything. it was just so, I, I can't tell you, one of the greatest five, six months of my life, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, just such an endorphin rush. I mean, every performance is sold out, George, and these people are there, and I'm there, and they meet me, and, and, and those are my words. And, and me and the artistic director would sit out there, and we'd hear the laughter, and we'd say, why aren't they laughing as much tonight? They're They're... Last night we had better, you know, it's so, when it's live, it's so thrilling. So yeah. congratulations for you. I mean, obviously, I don't know if you're doing it live or you're recording it. It's, you're it's, it's both. It's it's live and it's being recorded. I, so. I would say if I had, you know, it is for me to answer your question again, another long journey to the answer. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, theater is a different thing. I think Alexander had, you know, he came my novel from, you know, maybe just, maybe 10% from where I might have been. I think he saw the characters as being sort of a little bit more rudderless boobs than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw them as like, yeah, a little bit, you know, wacky, whatever. But I think he saw them as kind of rudderless boobs. But, but you know, he honored it faithfully. And I think he was the right person to do it. He was the only person to do it. Nobody else yeah. wanted it. Nobody mm-hmm. wanted it. They couldn't even figure out what it was. But he wouldn't have been the right person to do the, the stage adaptation. You know, mm-hmm. and even though I'd never written a play before, and I took some risk. By the way, the play has 23 scene and setting changes. Des Mackinoff said, and he's he's directed plays for 40 years. He yeah. said it's the hard, hardest non-musical I've ever had to do because he had wow. all these. So there are a lot of plays, as you know. Let's take the most famous one, Waiting for Godot. Mm-hmm. It's it's two men in a tree. Yeah, you know, that's it. You know, and it's one of the most famous plays and whatever that next my next play will be two men in a wine bottle. 
you know, <laughs> because th- those 23 scene and setting changes were hard to do. And uh, but Amelia Mulkey really did a wonderful job and with the transitions. But those transitions had to be done differently at La Jolla Playhouse because now it's a 20 million dollar Broadway theater and they had to come fast using a lot of tech. But mm-hmm. it just was so, you know, there's something about live theater that's so exciting. I, I hope the musical gets done. It just COVID knocked out theater for the musical theater for three years and it is climbing back. And we do have this great director attached and my composer is working on it. But so they're all different meetings. They all have different, you know, levels of excitement to it. You know, the theater has a sad side to it too. The play ends, the play ends and that's it. Yes. You may have recorded it, but you don't want to see the recording. You know, the Mm -hmm. tent goes up, the tent goes down, but the movie you can put it on any night, you know, you can just go on, to, you know, whatever, Roku, and there it is somewhere. And my novel is always there. So there's an, in, in, you know, there's a permanence to them. And they're in, with theater, it's a, there's an impermanence. And I would, if I had any advice for you, I would say, just cast the best people you can, because it makes a huge difference, especially, live, yeah. especially live theater. But and even in, in, in fact, Alexander Payne said to me with, with film, he said, my nervous moment is casting. He says, if I cast wrong, I'm fucked. And, yeah. and, he, and he actually, and this is a long story, but we don't have time for this. He really held out for Paul Giamatti. I mean, he really, there, I could tell you so many stories, but you know, everyone wanted, you know, name who's who, famous people. And, and he held out for who he thought was right. And obviously what brilliant casting that was. So, but yeah. you have to have the power to hold out for that. And in theater, I did have final casting say too, which is interesting. And I had to overrule a couple things and go with with my gut on some people. And and it really makes a difference because I've seen different iterations of the play where sometimes those those cast members don't deliver because theater is all about acting. But so you know, definitely cast right. So they're just all different mediums. But you know, for me, I guess it's kind of. You know, I don't mean to use the word redemption again, but it's it is redemptive to suddenly have the novel back out there. A lot of people I wish I had ten dollars, George, every time somebody said to me, You wrote sideways? Yeah, wow. I didn't know it was a novel. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there is the there is the credit that says on there based on the novel by Rex Pickett. So Yeah, well it's not reflected on my last royalty stage, but Oh, know, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am definitely sure of that. So so one of the things that I really, you know, I I, I would like I would like to know is like based on I know that you said before that there were, you know, relatively small amount of changes that were made, you know, like for the for the adaptation. At the end of the day, would you say that you were pleased with those changes for the most part? You know, you don't like to see any any changes, I guess, at all. So I, I'd like to, I'll give you kind of the diplomatic response, but then I will give you an honest response because that's mm-hmm. who I am. The diplomatic response is in Hollywood, given what they can do to your material and you have no say so whatsoever, Alexander mm-hmm. Payne totally honored my novel. It is, as far as the adaptations go, you know, I, I got all, almost to the top of Mount Everest. I mean, in terms of everything. I mean, yeah. they're, you know, Sandra is a wonderful actress or whatever, and she changed some things and, you know, that are totally different. And bear in mind, she was married to Alexander at the time, so she was able to get those changes. Others wouldn't have. Yeah. And she knew that she, because the, the novel's written in first person, 
the movie, I don't know if you know this, is essentially in first person because Miles is in every scene. So you mm-hmm. never go off with Jack, you know, Thomas Hayden Church and, you know, Sandra Oh. You never go off with them. So yeah. it stays in the first person. So Sandra knew she was basically a de facto tertiary character. So she changed a lot of things. She gave herself a motorcycle and that was fine. Mm-hmm. Then she gave herself a white trash mother and and then and I know a biracial kid and I have no problem with being biracial. But it makes in the novel she doesn't have a kid. It makes Jack look more pathetic that she has a kid, you know, mm-hmm. to me. So that's the only change. Honestly, that that's it. The fact that Miles was a school teacher doesn't bother me. I thought that mm-hmm. was a perfectly good change. It didn't it, it kind of roots him in a kind of a middle class existence. I mean, look, it's gonna get filtered through you know, a, a you know a two-time Oscar-winning guy. You know, it's going to get filtered through his artistic and aesthetic sensibility, and so you just you know you have to accept that and and hold on hold dear to you know what what he stayed faithful to, and he stayed faithful, you know, to the the storyline of the novel. In fact, if you watch the movie again, it is the chapter structure is Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Well, mm-hmm. you see a black title card, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I mean, that's how he's literally filmed your novel. I mean, you, yeah. you can't, even if there's a couple changes, you know, that, you know, you're like, you know, kind of closing your eyes, wincing at, and I'm, we're talking about minor stuff here. I mean, you can't be nothing but extremely grateful. And then, I mean, look what the film did. You know, it grossed yeah. over a half, half a billion dollars with DVD and everything. And, you know, change the wine world, as you know. I mean, everyone knows what Pinot Noir is. Prior to the movie, people didn't know what Pinot Noir even was, you know. And, uh, you know, so <clears throat> it, it's had a profound effect, and there's been many articles written about that profound effect. And mm-hmm. But it did, it, did come, it did come genuinely from the guy you're talking to right now. I mean, I was going to wine tastings. I was broke, trying to find a some sort of social outlet I could. And and I fell in love with Pinot Noir and I started going up to the San Andreas Valley to get away from my crappy life and playing golf, honestly. And, and then I discovered wine and, you know, like writers, you know, we're like thieves, George, we're always working. We're yep. always absorbing. We're always sponges for everything. And then, and one, one weekend I said to my friend Roy, who's kind of the Jack character, more, more in spirit than in action, but yeah. He's a he's a larger than life guy. He's got a great laugh. I can make him laugh. And we went up there and we played golf and we went wine tasting and you know, you know, got pretty blitzed. And then I made him laugh. He said, "Rex, you should write a screenplay." I wrote a screenplay, but it didn't work. And I parked mm-hmm. it. I never showed it to anybody. It was called Two Guys on Wine. And then I was writing a short story in first person yeah. about a wine tasting I was going to in Santa Monica where I live that kind of degenerates into a brawl with all these wine snobs. And I, I'll never forget it. I stood up. This is after going up to the San Andreas Valley for four or five years. I stood up at my desk from this moment. And I said, wait a second. This is the prologue to the screenplay, but it's a novel. It's not a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And it will be written in first person from the standpoint of Miles Raymond, Rex Pickett. Yep. And I wrote it. I wrote it in nine weeks. Wow. Wow. Like I said, I was getting rejection letters on my mystery novel, La Prisma. I'd right. written a screenplay called Two Guys on Wine, but I thought it well, was yeah. silly and did, didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then, but I just keep going. You know, you, you can't, you don't have a job. You can't stop. You're borrowing money, mm-hmm. living in a rent control house. You got roommates for the first time in your life. And so I'm just writing a short story about, you know, the wine tastings I was going to on, on Saturday from three to five that 
would often turn kind of nutty and crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and it was written in first person from the standpoint of Miles. And I just, I got to the end. I literally stood up from my desk. I had an epiphany. My God, that's the two guys on wine screenplay, but it's a novel. It's not a screenplay and it's written in first person. And so, yeah, I'm just, you know, you keep feeling your way. You keep pushing. When I was in New Zealand, for example, doing mm-hmm. the research for Sideways New Zealand, I'm going there to, not to just drive around and say hello to people. I'm trying to find a story. Yeah. I'm trying to find it. And so I, I was going to book clubs and, and trying to find the, you know, trying to find it. And it wasn't always easy. Whereas a lot of people and, and a lot of writers and God bless them, if they can do it, they just, they never leave their room and imagine whole worlds and, you know, especially sci-fi and fantasy. You don't have to go anywhere. I have to go there. I mean, I, I, I went to the San Inez Valley not to write a novel. I went up there to play golf. It was only two and a half hours north of L.A. And it was just a, it was an inexpensive getaway. And I'd stay at the Windmill Inn, which, by mm-hmm. the way, George, is now the Sideways Inn. No kidding. And that's right. And in oh, fact, the clubhouse bar where Jack tells Miles somewhat pathetically that he's going to have to call off his wedding that's mm-hmm. now the sideways lounge. Yeah, I know. And no, wow. no, George, I don't get any room. Yeah, of course. But you, yeah, but but you get the satisfaction. You get the I satisfaction get the of knowing. And there's you know? side, sideways in, you know, it's right over the 101 freeway, you know. But, um, you know, that that was my life. I was going up there. I, I probably went up there 50, 60, 70 times before I, I actually wrote that novel. So it was something was really wow. building in me, kind of in some ways, like Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. He was going to Pamplona. He knew mm-hmm. all these characters. There's actually a great book, how that really built in him all these characters. And in fact, I would advise all the aspiring writers out there and or and even other whatever, you know, is I like to draw from real life. Nothing wrong with sci-fi and fantasy. I don't read it, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. but um, I, I like to draw from real life, real characters. It's it's what makes it hard is is when you're rejected and you've written from yourself, you mm-hmm. feel like you're personally rejected. If yeah. I just wrote about cops and serial killers, okay, they rejected that. I'll go write about, I don't know, you know, an outbreak of stores on an island or something. And, you know, and you know, it, it's like, how can you be, yes, sure, it's not fun to be rejected, but if it's for something that you not have a personal, you don't have a personal stake in, but when you write about yourself and you mm-hmm. flay your soul, bear your soul, whatever, and then you're rejected, it's, oh, it's, it stings. It, and then, things, yeah. and, and then after all the, re- there was over on sideways, the novel, there's over 225 rejections on four, four separate, four separate sets of submissions, mass submissions, by the wow. way. And then to have, have it become what it became. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how could so many people be wrong and, and, yeah. you know, whatever. And, and, and it's like, you, and you, you know, you start to doubt yourself. Maybe I'm a crappy writer. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I was wrong back then when I was 17 years old and I thought I should be a writer. And this is, you know, this is what I was put on this earth to do, yeah. you know, cause let's face it. There are some people and you've met them and I've definitely mm-hmm. met them who think they were put on this earth to do something. And we know, and we want to be, of course, you know, we want to be encouraging and, you know, encourage mm-hmm. our hopes and dreams, but, they weren't put on this earth to do that, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't know. And, and, and then we get into meritocracies and Nepo babies and all this other stuff. But, you know, the bottom line is, is you start to doubt. In my case, I start to doubt myself. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I am. A, maybe I am like Miles. I'm a loser. <laughs> mm. Wow. 
Well, that's well, that's thankfully that's definitely not the case here. You know, like, so with with everything that you've experienced, the all the different roads that you have taken on this amazing journey that you that you've been on, what would you say to someone who is basically just trying to start in that direction? They're like at the starting gate, they're getting ready to to get something out there. They know they have something inside them that they need to get out. But at the same time, they're not sure exactly what direction to take. They're not sure what steps to take and everything. What would you say to them should be the first step that they should take in order to get to where they need to be? Well, you know, we live in just such a different time here with digital and self-publishing and all that would have been difficult 30 years ago for me, you know, whatever. But and, and you can take this advice or not take this advice. There are some writers out there who say write a page a day and just keep writing it over and over until you get it right and then go to page two. I say no, the complete opposite. I go for – I know this is going to sound paradoxical now. Mm-hmm. Quantity over quality. Quantity over quality. You can always go back and find quality. But with mm-hmm. quantity, you are going to – you're going to find your way to your voice quicker. If you're sitting there and just struggling over every page and every paragraph and you're just, you know, tortured and whatever, you know, okay, that's number one. You know, I I really think quantity over quality. Number two, I map out in my, I mean, when I say map out, I don't mean three by five cards, none of that crap, but Mm -hmm. I kind of, I kind of see the journey in my head. And I, I think that you should see, try to adumbrate the journey in your head, number one. Number mm-hmm. two, try to hear the characters and, and try to hear them differently. I, you know, characters should be differentiated, differentiated by voice, how they think, how Jack talks and how Miles talks. They're very different. You know, Miles is clearly, this goes back to Jung now, but he's mm-hmm. clearly the, the introverted thinking type. And Jack is clearly the extroverted feeling type. They are clear opposites. So look for opposites because opposites equals conflict equals drama, equals comedy, equals resolution. If I were to give any advice, if you don't have that and you don't have conflict, you're going to get into the middle of the ocean and you're, you're going to be utterly rudderless. And number three, number three and four, these are my last two things, verisimilitude. So Mm -hmm. verisimilitude obviously means the ring of truth. Try to find the ring of truth that, 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 that something is true, that this makes sense in the story. Don't be afraid to fictionalize and go off the deep end. I, I certainly do it. You know, I didn't have a naked man run after me down the street in Lompoc, but, (laughs) you know, uh, but, you know, but you know what? I did once drink from the spit bucket, you know, but not quite in the way that it's done there. So I like Mm -hmm. drawing from real life. Now, not everyone wants to do that, but I like to do that. But number four, a piece of advice I think is more general is I wouldn't write unless I had an ending. Mm. I will not yeah. even start because the ending for me is like a lodestar. It is, it, and also I want the ending to have, and this is just me now, I want mm-hmm. it to have a kind of, I, that I know it's going to hit a, an emotional chord. It's going to strike an emotional chord, and I'm driving to that ending. And if you've mm-hmm. got that ending, and there's a couple famous writers that will tell you the same thing. There are others who just, they, you know, and he, and I love Haruki Murakami, by the way. I love his writing. Yeah. And his book on writing is terrific. And he doesn't have an ending and he doesn't know where he's going. So, <laughs> you know, so for all of you out there who, you know, say, well, Rex is like, she, no, I, it's not It's what works for me, but that's what works for Murakami and it does work for him. But for me, I like having an ending and I like having, I knew that Miles and Jack were going to get to that wedding. I didn't mm-hmm. know how much trouble they were going to get into, 
but I just mm-hmm. knew they were going to make it to that wedding. And I, and I need, I need to know that in a way it's not as though I might not change it, but almost right. I never, I never changed the ending. So I would say quantity over quality, try to find your voice, you know, try to differentiate yourself, make your voice unique and stand out. Don't read magazines about what's selling you know, like horror is big right now and whatever, you know, if you're going to go down that road, you know, just remember there's probably a hundred thousand other people doing the same thing. So you've got a lot of competition, you know, try to, and this is me, try to individualize yourself, try to make yourself stand out as somebody really unique. And you're going to do that by looking inward and not looking outward in my opinion. Excellent. Excellent. And I definitely have to have to agree with you on the verisimilitude part, because one of the things that I love telling people is when I was working on the sequel to my, my own book, Excelsior, I, it was around the time when I was getting the sequel going. That's when I started working at Top of the Rock, the observation deck at Rockefeller Center in New York City. And it wound up being the last job that I would have in New York City before making the move to St. Louis. And when I was there, the first time that I stood stepped out on that 70th floor, the only thing that was going to my mind was just like, God, I would love to have a sword fight scene up here between Excelsior and another character. Just like, you know, just have them just go all at it and everything. The whole place like completely clear, but just to have this sort of view with this sort of platform and everything, it would be so cool. But then that verisimilitude part came up and I was just like, how is he going to pe- get the sword past security? Like that was my sticking point. This is right. a character who's like a god, a, a, a god in human form. He's dealing with a a, a character that is going to be brought back from the dead, and I'm worried about security because of that. Because of that verisimilitude part, I'm just like, I can't just have him go through security and everything, and they show his sword and be like, okay, you can go <laughs> go up. I had to actually like talk it out with another with another employee and she gave me the the perfect out she just said she said like there is a you know what if there's an event up there i was like yes if there's an event up there they're not going through security they're going around the other way and that that was my and that was my in and that created a whole lot more yeah i I would say that story that is that's a terrific story bear in mind if you hadn't gone up to the top of that floor, you never would have had the idea in the first place. So, exactly. you know, I encourage you to go out into the world. I mean, when I wrote The Archivist, for example, my archivist, you know, the woman who processed my papers and, you know, and that spent six months processing my papers is incredible. And so when I started to write the, the eight episode limited series that became the novel, which you can get on RexPicketBooks.com. But anyway, it is, you know, I started asking, I said, okay, well, where would this young project archivist find these love emails between these two people. And she goes, dark archives. I go, hold on a second. Dark archives. What's that? She goes, well, you know, 90% of stuff is not actually not actually analog. It's actually digital. And it's out there on these servers. I said, so you could just put stuff out on these servers in somebody's archive. She goes, yeah, sure. And I go, oh my God, how do we get there? So, you know, you know, you have to put yourself out there. You have to be a bit of a detective. And I'm not saying you can't just sit at home and be a navel gazer and write a brilliant novel. I, there are probably right. some people have done that, but I like to go out into the world kind of like you did there. And then, you, you know, you see, you know, something that, you know, it, a flare goes off in your head and you have an idea, but then the idea presents a problem. But in, in trying to kind of re- get around that problem, you come up with an elegant solution that makes the scene even better. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and this happened in the archivist. It took me, 
you need to keep no stone unturned. You need to keep digging. And I, I had to do the same thing in New Zealand. I had to keep going in that camper van. You know, yeah. ultimately, I was ultimately I was in it by myself in this six ton camper van, <laughs> and I found myself in on a beach, wow. and the wind was blowing fifty to seventy miles an hour on Cape Palliser Road, and the road was caving in. It would have if it had been California or anywhere, would they would have closed it? I mean, there's only one lane left. I mean, I'm having like a panic attack out there, whatever. And I thought, oh, and but when I got back, you know, this and it was perfect for me and for the book is, you know, the world is ending. Miles, you know, abandons the camper van. And he's also got a special needs cat, by the way. Oh, so, I, yeah. <laughs> and uh, who becomes actually a kind of almost like a, you know, an emotional support animal for him because he has reached the end of the world. But had yeah. I not gone there in that camper van, I was just looking for another location, another place to be alone or whatever. But it was a, in one of the, it was the storm of the century. Mm-hmm. And I'm in 50 to 70 mile an hour winds in a six ton camper van, just blowing me off. And they literally the road this just this little one lane road was crumbling mm-hmm. into the ocean. I have pictures of it. And so, you know, you gotta, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like sideways. I just kept going up the San Andreas Valley going up there and, you know, it seeps into you. Sometimes other places don't do anything for you. You meet people and they go, they're not a character. Then you'll r- run across somebody and go, Oh my God, there's a character. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you start to, you know, uh, you know, draw upon them and draw upon their speech patterns. But again, that's me. I like drawing from, you know, from real things, because the more I can do that, the more I think I can make them kind of lived in and relatable. Like I think, you know, I think we're here today talking about sideways and all mm-hmm. things sideways because, you know, I dared to make a character with uh, warts and all, you know, and- Paul Giamatti. Yeah. And that story has, you know, has aged like a fine wine. You know, it's been, it's over, over 20 years and everything. It's been, it's, and it's on its way to finding a brand new audience now that it's, you know, that's about to come out in hardcover. So where can my, where can my listeners find you on social media? Well, I'm definitely on Twitter or just, you know, Rex Pickett. I'm Instagram, Rex Pickett. I'm I, actually, I just shot a bunch of videos the other day. I'm starting to shoot some videos of me, you know, holding up my book and, and, and maybe even doing some funny things. So definitely there. Haven't quite embraced TikTok yet. Maybe I should. Mm-hmm. I don't know, George, maybe you can convince me to go it's there. It's been fun. It's been, you know, yeah. like uh, I've, I've, no, I've noticed, you know, I've noticed the funny, the funniest thing is, is that when, you know, I've been doing a lot of publicity for this upcoming audio drama and it's such a it's such a passion project for me because this character I've spent 30 years with him and here and he's finally like coming out there and in a way that I was so convinced was just going to be laughed at or just going to be you know discarded and people are people are are grabbing onto him and the cast That's that I cool. have is is amazing and the producer is amazing the musicians that are doing the score they're amazing oh, wow. like it's wow. there's the sound effects team you know and everything like everyone is just giving their all to this and it's all for this character that you know that I've been holding on to and cult you know curating for for so long and and it's and it's really it's really exactly what what you know like what comes down to what you were doing you wrote you wrote the character of miles through in in such a personal fashion by injecting everything about you like everything about what you love everything about what what has grabbed onto your life and 
there it is. And, you know, like, and he is, and he's gone on to flourish. And so yeah. that's, well, it's, it's definitely, you know, autobiographical and, and, you know, talking about, you know, your whole drama that you're doing, I didn't realize you're doing with music and, you know, mm-hmm. you're really almost like doing a, it's a full production, even though it's, yeah, it's it audio, is. but yeah. audiobooks, as you know, has really grown in the last 10 years. It's a growing mm-hmm. thing. People aren't reading as much, which is unfortunate, or they're reading a lot of short little articles that keep bombarding them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't think storytelling, so I can be cynical about, you know, the future of reading, but which is unfortunate because I don't think anything does for the mind what reading does, but whatever, the yeah. development of the mind and development of cognition and whatever. But, but that said, storytelling is not going to go away, George. And storytelling mm-hmm. is characters drive stories, you know, yeah. and creating great characters and whether we tell it in audiobook form, whether we tell it in, you know, a, a radio theatrical production like you're doing or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's wherever we go back to theater or whatever. I mean, you know, we go back to Jung here. Storytelling is in all mythology. It's in all fairy tales. It's in religion. You know, is is storytelling, these stories of, I don't know, these journeys of suffering and redemption, whether you leave your house or not, it could still be a journey of suffering and redemption, you know, whatever. I don't think that's going to go away, whether people will actually hold physical books in their hand 20 years from now and turn pages. Sadly, that might be, you know, I don't know, vanishing. I hate to say it, going the way of lace work. But mm-hmm. I don't think storytelling will. And it's obviously with movies and TV, there's storytelling there too, which is, you know, they're different mediums. But, you know, that that for me is, you know, I I went I went to the truly autobiographical. And that's where ultimately I think autobiographical but willing to fictionalize and it was that marriage i didn't do it consciously it just i just kept pushing and pushing and that's where this life which is a life i don't i often say to people you think i live a charmed life but you wouldn't want to live the life i've lived in order to live the ostensibly charmed life i'm currently living Mm. with with the under the underline on ostensibly, you know, yeah. but uh, no, seriously, you know, I mean, I, I don't wish this life on anybody, you know, all the rejection, and everything else. And if this is what you were, I believe, I'm not saying I was put on this earth to do, because I think it's arrogant, but it was to me at some point, it was what I had to do to, you know, I don't know, exercise these demons of my, of my youth of growing up in a, in a place that was alienating and, and in my opinion, spiritually desolate, you know? Mm. And so art was the way to find meaning to alchemize, to use, you know, talked about a lot was alchemy Mm -hmm. and and to alchemize that feeling of desolation and alienation. And it's still there in miles to this day, you know, and, and, and find a poetry in it, find a kind of a lyricism that's transcendent. And that's ultimately, you know, what, I, well, I'm getting validated finally that I, maybe, yeah. maybe I, maybe I did climb that ladder a little bit, you know, that I found something transcended in all the suffering. Yeah. You absolutely did. Yeah. And, and I hope that, that all of, all of you authors are taking every bit of this to heart because they always say that, that all the, you know, the stories have already been told. That is incorrect. Your story has not yet been told your perspective, your character and just like what Rex was saying, character is, is what drives the stories forward. So I hope that you're able to take all of this information, 
everything that uh, that Rex has been saying, everything that we've been discussing, and take it and apply it to your writing the very best that you possibly can. So for Rex Pickett, this is George Saroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com.